Those of you who are old enough, do you remember when we would go to a theater to watch a movie? Those were good times. I especially like the trailers. Now, there's the previews for upcoming movies. The more, the better. They preceded the movie, but that wasn't always the case. When movies were sent to theaters on actual film, the previews had to be added to the end of the reel. Hence, they were called trailers, and they still are. End credits are another story. They've gotten longer and longer over the years. 10, 12, 16 minutes is not unusual. Why not just leave? We're forced to watch them because the producers have added mid-credit and end-of-credit scenes. Gang boss, gaffer, grip, wrangler, best boy. Who cares besides their moms? No one ever says, look, isn't that the gang boss from Rogue One? Instagram isn't blowing up with best boy selfies. These folks, however, are absolutely essential to the movie. Without them behind the scenes, there would be no scenes. Psalm 134 introduces us to some end credit-like servants behind the scenes of the annual feasts. Look at verse 1. You servants of the Lord who by night stand in the house of the Lord. We will see that this special unseen night shift included workers and watchmen. Can we see ourselves in this psalm? Sure, it has value. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 we read, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. In the Revelation, Jesus told us, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Don't sleep. You've got the night shift and should watch and work behind the scenes of the great drama unfolding because the Lord is coming. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you are the Lord's behind-the-scenes worker. And number two, you are the Lord's behind-the-scenes watchman. Verses 1 and 2, we're going to take a look at us, uh, ourselves as workers. Those of you who are old enough, do you remember you could go to a magical place called Disneyland? Those were good times. Over 1,500 workers were employed on the night shift to get the park ready for the next day's guests. The temple in Jerusalem required a lot of night shift workers. It's hard to be totally accurate about exactly what went on overnight. Both Jewish and Gentile sources are spotty at best, and they sometimes disagree on details. We don't need to know the exact details. We realize that there was a lot to be done, whether it was the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, or Tabernacles. Jerusalem would swell with pilgrims coming to the temple for the prescribed days and nights of those festivals. The numbers of pilgrims is hard to calculate. At its lowest, it would have been in the tens of thousands of individuals. Sometimes at a large gathering, maybe a dinner, the host will recognize the kitchen staff or others who made it all possible. That's essentially what happens in verses 1 and 2. They are acknowledging some of the behind-the-scenes servants who made it all possible. And so verse 1, a song of ascents. Behold, bless ye the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. How many, do you remember that song? Anybody remember the song? Okay, I won't sing it. I need your help. And I, I very rarely ask for help and see what you did to me there. But anyway. I, no, I'm not going to do it. As the returning pilgrims say, adios to Jerusalem, we say au revoir to the songs of ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. It's been a good study. These going up to worship songs, Israel's, uh, Israel's festival playlist, they end fittingly here. 
The pilgrims pause to recognize those servants of the Lord who by night stand in the house of the Lord. In the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles, in chapter 9, some of the general duties of workers in the temple are listed. Uh, some are specified as night workers, others work through the day. But let me just read you an edited passage, get an idea of what went on in the temple. The gatekeepers were assigned to the four directions, the east, west, north, and south. In this trusted office were four chief gatekeepers. They were Levites. Now, uh, they lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility, and they were in charge of opening it every morning. Some of them were in charge of the serving vessels. They brought them in and took them out by count. Some of them were appointed over the furnishings and over all the implements of the sanctuary, and over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the incense and the spices. Some of the sons of the priests made ointment of the spices. Some of the Levites had the trusted office uh, over things that were baked in the pans, and some were in charge of preparing the showbread for every Sabbath. There were singers, Levites, who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties, for they were employed in that work day and night. Uh, So the gatekeepers are prominent. They were the watchmen we will discuss under our second point. Notice some of the additional duties, treasurer, security guards, those charged with the vessels and implements, those who oversaw furnishings, perfumers, and bakers. It was an exhaustive list. Uh, Rather, it wasn't an exhaustive list. There was plenty of additional work to do, as you might imagine. Let's see if we can make a biblical application to the church. The Jews attended the annual feasts. There were seven altogether, but only three of them were required. We know that all seven of the feasts pointed to Jesus. Jesus was the final Passover lamb, the lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. In fact, he died on the cross exactly when the lambs were being slain in the temple that Passover. Passover included the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven is a symbol of sin. This pointed as a festival to Jesus' sinless life, making him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. First fruits pointed to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of the righteous. He was resurrected on this very day. Paul refers to him in 1 Corinthians as the first fruits from the dead. Pentecost occurred 50 days after the beginning of unleavened bread and pointed to the great harvest of souls and the gift of the Holy Spirit for both Jew and Gentile who would be brought into the kingdom of God during the church age. Indeed, the church was established on this day when God poured out his Holy Spirit and 3,000 Jews responded to Peter's great sermon, this first proclamation of the gospel. Trumpets was the first of the fall feasts. Many believe that this day points to the rapture of the church when Jesus will appear in the heavens as he comes for his bride, the church. Others say it relates to Israel and the coming of Jesus, second coming, uh, at the end of the tribulation. David Homan points to Jesus when he returns to earth and the Jewish remnant looks upon him whom they have pierced, repenting of their sins and receiving him finally as their Messiah. And then the last of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, points to the Lord's promise that he will once again tabernacle or dwell with his people when he uh, returns to reign over the whole world. Now, when we meet, like we're doing today, on the first day of the week, following the custom of the early church, 
It'd be like celebrating all four feasts that were fulfilled and the three that will be fulfilled. It is a recognition that all of these feasts are completed in Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus, that they were the shadow and that he is the substance. When the Lord died on the cross, one of the miracles that accompanied his accomplishment was that the veil in the temple that kept the Ark of the Covenant out of view was torn from top to bottom. It's torn from top to bottom, indicating that God tore it, uh, making the way of access into his presence possible. There was no longer a veil, no longer anything separating him from mankind. And it also communicates that everything preceding the veil, everything on this side of the veil, was now done away with. All the sacrifices, all the ceremonies, they're fulfilled in Jesus and no longer need to be Performed. Uh, this is why uh, frequently I talk about this. It's, I guess you'd say it's a pet peeve with me. But there are a lot of people in the church today, uh, the contemporary church, who want to return to some of these Jewish rituals, at least to uh, you know, go through them and do them. Uh, can we learn stuff from these rituals? Absolutely. But you know what we learn? We learn that Jesus fulfilled them and that we don't need to do them anymore. And we should be happy about that. And so maybe it's because I have a background where the church was always in the way of me knowing God rather than me meeting God. Uh, but anytime we start to put obstacles between us and the Lord, like rituals or ceremonies, especially those that have been fulfilled by Jesus, uh, it's a problem. We don't want distance from the Lord. We want to experience the intimacy and closeness that he has for us. We don't need to tack up our own veils and act like these ceremonies are important for Christians. Now, the gathering of the church to celebrate Jesus requires behind-the-scenes work and workers. Let me ask you, and again, not to shame anybody because I don't even know, can you name all of our children's ministry workers? right now that are laboring over there with kids, maybe your kids. I can't, and I'm the pastor. I shouldn't admit that probably, right? <laughs> Yet they have prepared all week to minister to children. Jesus' desires would come to him and learn of him and uh, be saved by him. And, and so whenever you have a work of God, there's obviously a lot of work going on. Some of you thought it'd be easier over here at the building than it was at the YMCA. <laughs> It's not any easier. It's just different, right? And, and that's cool. We have so many people. One of the things that's always blessed me about this church uh, is that so many individuals are behind the scenes working all the time. Lots of servants doing multiple things. You know, we, we, we've, I don't think, ever gotten up and begged for servants. You know, we've never done the thing where the pastor says, I'm going to go over and teach Sunday school right now because none of you people will do it. <laughs> it happens. Back to our psalm. Verse 1 mentions those who by night stand in the house of the Lord. The passage we heard from Chronicles specifically mentions singers, Levites, who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties, for they were employed in that work day and night. As I mentioned, details are spotty, but from these passages, I think it's safe to say there was singing in the temple all through the night, every night. Why not? We know that the earthly temple was patterned after the temple in heaven. We learn that in Hebrews chapter 8 and in other places. And in the Revelation, in heaven, we read that there is constant worship, live worship, not canned worship, not radio worship, but live worship uh, as different uh, supernatural beings and individuals sing to the Lord day and night forever. Commentator Derek Kidner wrote, 
The temple was never left without Levites to sing praises in it. So should we stop and form choirs that sing 24-7 here at the building? Sure. Yeah, sign up. We'll have a sign-up sheet. And uh, you don't need to have any talent. No, we're not going to do that. And you know why? It's not necessary if we obey the apostle, uh, the apostle Paul's exhortation that we each speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. And this is an example of what we mean when we say that everything is fulfilled in Jesus. The constant worship in the temple by different groups of Levites all night is replaced by the fact that our hearts can be filled with worship and praise all the time, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, whether we're actually singing or not. I think if you're going to hum, you might as well hum Christian songs, right? Uh, Pam got me. What was the other? I heard something in the background. Pam was watching something, and, and uh, they said, uh, the bird's the word. Somebody said that. And so all of a sudden, I didn't realize it, but I was going around the house going, hmm, 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 And finally, she said, would you shut up? I can't take that. Well, she didn't use the S word. Uh, she asked me nicely, Gene, would you please, as my loving husband, uh, <laughs> Consider not humming that song to the annoyance of all. But anyway, but you get the idea. There's a supernatural uh, aspect to this now that we're the church. We don't have to have... It'd be great if you want... I, I think we should just pipe music out 24-7, uh, but maybe we shouldn't. I don't know. Uh, maybe the neighbors would... Maybe they get safe. Maybe they would uh, stone us. Who knows? But anyway, uh, we, we do that as the temple of the Lord when we get together and individually as we uh, serve the Lord. A quick uh, verse two: Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. A quick word regarding lifting your hands and worship posture in general. A good rule to follow when you feel led to express worship in a more physical manner is this: Do not disturb. Simple, straightforward, really wonderful counsel. Will your movement disturb others, distracting them? Will it call attention to you instead of to the Lord? 1 Corinthians 14, in a passage about orderly worship, the Apostle Paul said, We can control ourselves, and we should, for the sake of order and for others. Now, this flies in the face of many churches and traditions that think that the Holy Spirit manifests himself by people losing control. And so when people start to lose control and shout and, and dance in place and not run into one another and walk, you know, all these different kinds of things that people do, that now you know that God is there. But the truth is, the biblical teaching is that if you're out of control, it can't be the Holy Spirit. Because Paul said the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Even though it is the Holy Spirit, you are to control your uh, posture and everything else in order to not disturb others and not disturb the work that the Lord is doing. And so, um, you know, it's not that we're conservative or we're afraid of anything. It's what the Bible teaches. Do not disturb. And so whatever, you know, at the end of our service every week, we have our little reflection time, right? And I tell you, come forward, get prayed for, sing in place, stand up, sit down, kneel if you'd like, raise your hands, uh, clap to the songs. Uh, if, you, if there's somebody in the fellowship that you uh, feel strongly you need to go and pray for them, get up quietly and go and lay hands on them and pray with them. Uh, and, and so we're not really restricting, uh, but we don't want people jumping up 
and speaking in tongues uh, when it's out of order or, uh, you know, doing things to call attention to themselves because we're here to worship Jesus, not to be led into, uh, you know, some kind of uh, gazing contest. And, and so it, it's, it's, a, it's actually do not disturb. It's the greatest thing that you could think of, uh, especially if you visit other churches and you're not really sure what's going on. But remember that when people are out of control, it's not the Holy Spirit. Uh, it just isn't, and, and that's, that's just the way it is. Now, the bakers were baking for the Lord. The perfumers were perfuming for the Lord. All the temple servants were doing it as unto the Lord. In the church, we're told, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the war, uh, reward of inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. That's from Colossians 3. And that's all great until you start to think that what you are doing for the Lord is menial or that it doesn't really matter. You can't see how it it fits into anything. But if it is service for the Lord and if it is done as unto him, by definition, it cannot be menial and it does matter. In one of the great movie sequences of all time, Daniel LaRusso was given three tasks. Remember what they were? Wax a car, paint fence, sand floor. Mr. Miyagi gives him very explicit instructions about how to perform each tax. Wax on, wax off, right? Daniel despairs thinking that what he's doing has no connection to karate whatsoever. Until Mr. Miyagi takes him through the sequence. Show me wax car. Show me paint a fence. Show me sand a floor. Not bad. I'm going to add that to my Sylvester Stallone and his manager. The only impressions I actually can get out. Now, those repetitive motions, they had become secondhand reactions and functioned as defensive blocks uh, for karate. And he had done so many thousands of them that they were second nature. I think sometimes the Lord says to us, Show me clean a toilet. Show me wash a feet. And, and you know what? We think we're better than that or that it doesn't amount to anything. It's for the Lord. Uh, you know, just give me the most menial task. Uh, that you know, who wants to be up front and 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 subject to criticism? Hey, cleaning toilets is a really wonderful ministry for the Lord. Uh, you know, and washing people's feet in terms of whatever it is they need. Uh, so uh, keep that in mind. Verse three: You are the Lord's behind-the-scenes watchman. Somewhere during our study of the Psalms, we mentioned that many are antiphonal. Loosely defined, that means they are written so that the singers are responding to one another. Psalm 134, it seems verses 1 and 2 are the goodbye recognition of the pilgrims directed to the night shift. That makes verse 3 the response of those tireless, mostly anonymous workers. The Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. As if they had said, we will lift up our hands and bless the Lord. Now you go in peace and may God shower down his blessings upon you also. The heavens here is the created universe, and in it is the earth upon which he placed mankind. In all of that created universe, in all of its splendor and wonder on the earth, Zion, or Jerusalem, is arguably the most important geography. It is the spiritual center, you might say. It's the place God chose to dwell among his people in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. God says it is the city that he loves. All blessing comes from God, and thus, in a sense, it's coming from Zion, from Jerusalem. Jesus died on the cross just outside of Jerusalem. He was buried, rose from the dead there, 
When he comes again in his second coming, it will be to Jerusalem. He will rule over the world on David's throne in Jerusalem. The future seven-year Great Tribulation is a time when God will be dealing specially with the Jews. It's uh, more commonly, well, not more common, but more accurately called the time of Jacob's trouble. We know it popularly as the Great Tribulation. It has several different names, but it's called in the Old Testament the time of Jacob's trouble or Israel's trouble to let us know that though Gentiles are involved, it's really God's dealing with the nation of Israel especially. And much of uh, the tribulation focuses on Jerusalem and takes place in the Holy Land. Now let's talk specifically about the night watchmen at the gates. We have the most agreed upon information about them. One reliable source, the Jewish Encyclopedia, says this. A strict watch over the temple was maintained, the guard being composed of three priests and 21 Levites. The Levites kept guard as follows. One at each of the five gates of the mount entrances, one at each of the four corners within the mount enclosure, one at each of the five important gates of the courts, one at each of the four corners within the court, one at the chamber of sacrifice, one at the chamber of curtains, and one behind the Holy of Holies. The captain of the guard saw that every man was alert, chastising a priest if found asleep at his post, beating him with his staff, sometimes punishing him by burning his shirt upon him as a warning to others. Now, this info about shirt burning comes to us through what is called the Midrash, which is ancient Jewish interpretation of the scriptures. So the watchmen, they didn't know when their captain might be visiting their post. Other reliable sources explain that the napping watchman would take off his outer garment and puff it up as a pillow to rest his head upon. If he was caught napping, he'd be beaten and his captain would burn the puffy shirt. That's what was happening. So they weren't setting people on fire. They were burning their clothing. Uh, but still, not something you wanted. Uh, when you got back to, you know, they probably had uh, a time when they all met and punched the clock, you know, at the end of their shift and couple of guys without shirts there, you know, and stuff, and everybody started making fun of them. Hey, uh, a little cool out there tonight, or was it hot while your shirt was on fire? You know, that kind of stuff. Watching, staying awake, not slumbering, those are all exhortations given to us as believers in the church age. We're the watchmen, we're the watch women, we're the watch children. Our captain is Jesus. He could come to resurrect the dead believers of the church age and rapture we who are alive at any moment. If he catches me napping and he chastises me for slumbering, I know that Jesus only chastens those he loves for our own good. Commentators see a devotional insight in Psalm 134. Uh, they compare the night watches with afflictions and sufferings and troubles of all kind. I came across a quote attributed to C.S. Lewis that um, is appropriate. Mental pain, he says, is less dramatic than physical pain. But it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. Interesting. Let me do a little aside here. I probably shouldn't because I didn't write it down, but you'll, you'll get it. Uh, when you're teaching the Bible or when you're reading the Bible, it's important to be in context. What, what does the text mean in its context? Why was it written? Who is it written for? This psalm has nothing to do really with uh, you being in a night season of your life and, and that kind of suffering. But can we make that application? Some would say no. And the quote I read from Lewis, 
That has even less to do with, with the context of the psalm. But what's interesting is what people forget is that there's more to the Word of God than just that original context. As long as you're uh, accurate to the context, we always talk about how God speaks through prophecy today. And there's pastors who will tell you that they're exercising the gift of prophecy. It doesn't mean they're predicting future events. It means they're listening to the Lord. And the Lord might say, hey, I want you to say this during this portion of the study. Because there's someone there who needs to hear that. And yeah, it's not in the text. It's not part of the text. As long as your whole study isn't like that, where you say, I read something and say, well, that reminds me of uh, the Reader's Digest, you know, and, and you go off on a tangent. And so, uh, you know, it's okay. I have to say this because the internet is filled with criticism all the time. Everything is a criticism. Everybody likes to be a critic. When Pastor Gene was talking about that, that has nothing to do with Psalm 134. Yeah, I know. But it has to do with God's people. It has to do with the Spirit of God wanting to minister to people. It has to do maybe with someone here today who's suffering from such mental pain that they just need to know that God acknowledges that and loves them. And so bear that in mind. And so don't go crazy. Don't start making applications that, that aren't there uh, without first knowing what's going on in the text. But God wants us to be ministered to, and the Spirit does that in a beautiful way. Transform your troubles into a sanctuary in which you bless the Lord. When you find yourself in a difficult night, watch, be encouraged by Paul and Silas, singing praises while in a disgusting, dismal, dreadful, dank, deep, dirty, dreary, dark Philippian dungeon. Those are all the do words I could find. Human history is a drama being played out. It's been called by many the romance of redemption. God's love for mankind was spurned by our original parents, but they had no idea the length and the breadth and the depth of his love. He would redeem them. He would restore them at the greatest cost to himself. He would love the world so much that he would give his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That drama is one story. It's told in 66 books, your Bible, progressively revealing how God sent Jesus to woo us back to a relationship with him, how he's going to send him again, and how we're going to go on into eternity, restored and redeemed. There are a kind of end credits in the Bible. Uh, it's the book of life and other books that we read about. If you're saved, your name is found written there. The book of life. Scholars argue about when it's put there and how it gets there based on their theology. But what you need to know is that if you're a Christian, if you're saved, your name is solidly in the book of life. If you die in your sins without Jesus as an unbeliever, your name won't be found in the book of life. It will appear in other books pertaining to the lost. Here's how it plays out in Revelation 20. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in those books. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire and an eternity of conscious suffering need not be your end credit scene. If you're not a believer, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, he died on the cross to draw all men to himself. He's the Savior of those who believe. He takes upon himself your sin and gives you his righteousness so that the Father sees you in Christ. 
If you've never received Christ, never confessed your sin and uh, come to him, do that today. We're going to have some guys up front that you can talk to, or you can do it where you sit. Uh, the Holy Spirit, we believe, is here ministering. He, uh, part of his ministry is to reveal Christ to the lost, to uh, open your heart, uh, unblind your blinded eyes, give you sight so that your will can be freed to receive the Lord. If you're a Christian, uh, rejoice. Know that you're on night shift uh, for the rest of our time on the earth. Don't think you're suffering from sleep deprivation. You're not. It's the kind of night shift that you don't need sleep for because you have the Holy Spirit in you uh, and, and to minister uh, through you. Uh, and so just be encouraged this morning about the Lord's love and his grace and his mercy as we wait for him to return.